season three of the Telly Award-winning podcast, coming at you with some Stone Cold Ryman, picking up the pace like Marvin Young MC Young, hitting you with a little rock and roller, Coca-Cola, hot like Sola, running like a boulder, dancing, prancing, Mike and Hanson, just give us a chance and girls, we're romancing, understand it. Underhanded, leaving you stranded, running like a bandit. Yo, young money in our hands, your buddy, picking up the pace and rocking the mic. Yeah, buddy. <laughs> Woo! That, that was a lot. lot. That, that was, was a lot. lot. That's that like the most lot. I've ever done. But yeah. I, but, but I did it for the most part. It was a high wire act. I'm, uh, I'm on the other side of the building, <laughs> and we're rolling. Uh, I am oh, Rylan Grant, uh, screenwriter. Ringo award-winning creator of fine comics like Aberrant Banjack, Suicide Jockeys, and now Fashang Origins. The other voice in the dark, a considerably quiet and uh, 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 more quiet and, 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 and more understated voice. Uh, the man in the box to the left is... David Avalone, comic book writer, film guy, film and television writer, and uh, coffee achiever. Yeah, I think next time, I, I think next week, I'll just come in with like a two-word thing, you know, and 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 now throw off, throw them off. We've <laughs> gotten used to the yelling they're, and screaming now. Yeah, they're yeah, they're used to the fastball now, you know, and that was like a hundred and twenty mile an hour uh, 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 bit of heat right there. So next time, a four-line EE coming. Well, well, yeah, yeah, we'll we'll hit him with an off-speed pitch. Though, though, we did do that. Remember the uh, the final episode of I don't know, was it season two or season uh, uh, one? Where I came in with the NPR opening. Hello. Oh yeah, yeah. And welcome to the writers' block. Block. <laughs> we'll be talking to James Aquiloni. Uh, gotta love it. Um, what do you got to plug the, uh, this week? Before uh, we, uh, well, we uh, we're going to be talking about the very current thing that I'm plugging, uh, project I'm working on with today's guests, guest. But um, coming, I think the day this drops after the 4th of July weekend, should be Savage Tales number one, in which I revive a couple of uh, turn-of-the-century characters, Alan Quatermain and um, Gullivar of Mars, for eight pages each with a couple of great artists. And then after that should be uh, Elvira in Horrorland number three coming, which is our alien issue called Geiger Encounter, or Giger, I think you pronounce that, which kind of kills the pun. Yeah. And uh, and yeah, that's about it. What about what do you got going on, Ryan? Well, uh, first of all, I'm a Geiger man, so uh, so let's just get that out in the open. I, I, I don't mess around with any of this other crap, but mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, still um, I am still recovering from uh, movie prep. Um, <laughs> uh, I will direct people over to the Immortal Studios website, immortal slash studios .com, where you can find my latest and greatest, the uh, Wuxia Kung Fu Epic uh, Fashing Origins. Um, go get that, go check it out and, you know, hit your local comic shop and check out, uh, the trade paperback of Suicide Jockey season one, uh, my tokusatsu romp, uh, which is quite delightful. Um, but yeah, that's where I'm at now. Uh, yeah. new things coming soon, but you know, and I'd have to kill you if I told you all that stuff. It's, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm extremely busy and wildly interesting. So, uh, so, yeah. <laughs> aren't we all? And speaking of extremely busy and wildly interesting, let's bring in James, our guest for today. Hello, James. Tell us, tell the kids at home a little bit about yourself. Uh, well, the short answer is I'm a writer and editor, uh, and that's basically all I do because even my night job, well, my day job, which is my night job, I'm a writer and editor, and on the side, I write it, write and edit. So that's all I do. 
Yeah. Very nice. And uh, I'll, I'll, I'll tell the origin story a little bit. We, one of my, you know, overarching themes on the show and of, you know, what little public speaking I do is the comics is a community and you have to be an active member of the community and be paying attention to that community. And James and I met because our friend uh, Rodney Barnes, who's been on the show, had a piece in an anthology that James was editing. He retweeted a post from James about that anthology, which was the Kolshak Night Stalker anthology. And I'm a longtime fan of the show and of Rodney Barnes. And I, uh, with, with great innocence, replied to the tweet, Hey, if you guys do a second volume of this, boy, I would sure love to be involved like the like the earnest young go-getter I am. And uh, you know, James reached out to me uh, shortly thereafter with an opportunity, a couple of opportunities as it turned out over time to uh, to participate. Um, it's you, you when you do that, when you bug people you don't know on Twitter, you have to hit the right tone. I, I think, uh, you know, I didn't say you got, you guys fucked up by not hiring me first, man. Like there, there are ways, God damn it. there are ways to fuck that up. There are ways to do that wrong. Uh, I, I, I was polite and, uh, I think that that helped a great deal, but, uh, well, yeah. Well, it, 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 yeah. And it, it's interesting. I mean, you talk about the community aspect, uh, James and I already knew each other before any of this happened That's because, right. uh, we had Kickstarters going at the same time and, we were both go-getters on Kickstarter and, um, you know, one of those things were kind of, uh, you know, game recognized game, that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, I think I reached out to him at some point and I said, Hey man, you know, great, uh, great campaign. Love what you're doing. Why don't we uh, get together and do some cross promotion? And, you know, we've helped each other out uh, a few times on Kickstarter um, and, and friended each other on Facebook and exchanged messages and congrats and all that stuff. And we've just been kind of cheerleaders for each other. So um yeah, so it's been I don't know, it's been a year or two now, James, where we're you know, you and I were were yeah, kind of yeah. yeah, in our quarters and then you know, and then suddenly independently, uh, you know, again, I, you guys are both just in the mix, right? So you end up right. crossing paths, you end up teaming up. Uh um, and then yeah, and then now we are together because Avalone has this working relationship uh uh with you. And um Avalone and I were discussing, okay, well, we're kind of coming back from a hiatus. Who do, who do we need to get on the show? And it was actually me. I was like, you know what? I would really like to get James on to talk about anthologies. And Avalone's like, that's actually an incredible idea. Let me reach out to him. Yeah. And and you know, and I don't even think I don't even know that you knew Shakespeare Unleashed was coming at that I, point. I don't, I, don't, I don't think I did, no. I don't yeah. know that it had come up in conversation between us. Yeah. So that's the current thing. Let's get that plug out of the way right now. Shakespeare Unleashed. Tell the kids at home a little bit about uh, Shakespeare Unleashed, Tim. Well, Shakespeare Unleashed is the second book in this series. Uh, we're calling it the Unleashed series. The The first book was Classic Mox Unleashed, which we uh, we did the Kickstarter for that last year, and it was really successful. We raised $57,000 um, right out of the gate, and I was really blown away by that. So uh, the publishers I was working with at the time said, I think we should do a series. So uh, that was, you know, just like, what's what are we, I didn't have that planned, and I didn't have, like, a second book planned. But um, I always knew I wanted to do something with Shakespeare because um, I'm a big fan of uh, Tom Stoppard's Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Uh, that blew me away when I saw that uh, back in the 90s. So I was like, you know, Shakespeare would be really awesome to do because I didn't want to do um, – I didn't want to do Classic Monsters Unleashed 2. Mm -hmm. I love the Classic Monsters, but, uh, you know, I, I just didn't want to go back to that. So I, I thought Shakespeare was a really cool um, 
the world to uh, explore that people wouldn't be expecting. Yeah, and when people see the piece that I did, they're going to go, wow, you really like Tom Stoppard. Because mine, <laughs> mine is very, I mean, the two main the two characters in mine are two literal spear carriers from Richard III who we are interested in their take on what's going on at the Battle of Bosworth Field in uh, Act 5, Scene 4 of uh, Richard III. And yeah, Stoppard's been a huge influence on me my whole life. I discovered him in... English class in high school while we were doing a Shakespeare unit, uh, we would read the plays aloud. Uh, and I think I read, I, I can never remember. I read the guy who's flipping the coins and getting the heads, not the guy who's right. Uh, I think that's Rosencrantz is the one flipping the coins and Guildenstern is the one losing the bet every time. I can't remember, but, uh, but anyway, how did you initially get involved? Was monsters unleashed your first one? Yeah, that's the first anthology I ever did. Uh, mm -hmm. So, I mean, going back to 2020, um, a tabletop gaming company had reached out to me and they wanted to do uh, a tabletop game based on my Dead Jack books. So we ended up uh, doing a Kickstarter for that and it was a complete disaster. Uh, <laughs> I wasn't running the campaign, so I won't uh, you know, take the blame for that. So... Um, they were looking to make a lot of money. Uh, they were looking to make like $100,000. And we ended up raising, I think, 12000 in the first 10 days. And they mm. weren't happy with that, so they just canceled it. They just stopped it. Uh, and we, we were pretty close to reaching our goal. Um, so I was really just hyped up with because uh, at that point, I had never worked with anyone. Uh, you know, I was just doing prose work, and then, you know, which is a pretty you know, uh, lonely business. So with the game, I, we were doing Zoom calls, and it would be it was very collaborative, and it was really awesome. So I was like all hyped up, and we just, you know, the campaign was just sh cut short, and I was just so frustrated with that. I was like, I gotta go out and do something else, and I had all these ideas for anthologies, and I said, let me just go for it. So I contacted Crystal Lake Publishing, and I said, hey, you wanna, you know, you interested in any anthologies? And they said to me, oh, we're not doing anthologies anymore because you know they don't make money. So I said, well, listen, uh, I'll do a Kickstarter. It won't cost you anything. And they're like, okay. <laughs> you know, when you say that, you, know, you don't have to worry about the money. You know, that's, that's you know, an easy deal to make. So then uh, I just pitched them Classic Monsters, and they were like, oh, this sounds awesome. And, and you know, I got a, a yes in, you know, like maybe within the hour. And then I was off inviting Jonathan Mayberry, and he said yes. And then once I knew he was in, then I knew I can get anybody else after that. That, that, that does end up, I, I mean, we've seen it with guest building, you know, uh, with, with, with building the show. It's like, you know, once you can say, oh, well, we had Rodney Barnes on, we had Kevin Eastman on, we had uh, Stan Sakai on, then, you know, it's pretty, um, you know, then you can reach out to literally anyone, you know. <laughs> yeah, it, it is weird who will still think they're too good to return your emails, but yeah, but on the other, but I've had, <laughs> yeah, I've, yeah. but I've had the, I've had the other experience more often. Yeah, or like you know, uh, me and Lalo Alcaraz, a uh, great uh, cartoonist, were following each other on Twitter, and I thought we had a cordial Twitter relationship. But when I reached out to him about doing the show, he was super enthusiastic, excited, and I was like, very like, uh, Lalo's not gonna want to do this. This is beneath his, you know, dignity, time, energy, whatever. Right. And he was thrilled, and you know, as we ended up winning an episode, winning an award for that episode because he's yeah. you know, he's such a terrific guest. 
So more often than not, you know, we had Shelly Bond on a couple of weeks ago, who's you know, a legend in this business for all sorts of good reasons. And uh, yeah, the more you, the more people can look at the guest list and go, well, Jonathan Mayberry, I guess yeah. I, you know, Rodney Barnes, I guess I can be a part of this. And it's, it's a. Uh, well, the, 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 yeah, I mean, there's a power in how you approach it also, right? It's like, I mean, I, I think it's the same thing with the anthology where it's like you, you go to this person and you're like, hey, what do you want to do? You know, when we approach a guest, it's it's what do you want to talk about? You know what I'm saying? I and mean, we can if you, if you got something you want to promote, we can talk about that. But, you know, but but we're not really a, a come on and pimp your book type of show. It's like, well, you know, you are a comic professional. You, you have strong opinions on things. What do you want to sound off on? You know, um, and, you know, with Rodney, that was the thing. I mean, we, um, uh, you know, Rodney wanted. um you know, uh, it, it was it was about finding the right show for him. You know, the the right forum, and uh, he had just acquired the rights to Blackula, and um, and nobody was talking about it. Everybody wanted to talk about the fifteen other things he had going on, including an HBO show and an Eisner uh, winning book. Yeah. And it was like, dude, come on and talk about Blackula. Let's talk about how that went yeah. down, how you got the rights, why you're doing it, what it means to you, all that stuff. And it was a great show. And 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 and, and here's the thing: is like you can. You can search Rodney Barnes on iTunes and find, you know, uh, a number of shows, but, you know, he did not give that show to anyone else. You know, there's there's not that Rodney Barnes show. And that was great. And he loved it. And then other people listen to it and they love that. And it's the same thing with you where it's like you you, you, you take, you know, you take a property like Kolshak, you take a, you know, you take classic classic monsters and it is this fertile ground. It's it's uh, it is ground that, um, you know, Shakespeare, of course, it's like people have these connections to it. Right. There are these things that they love about it, and you go to them, and it's like, "Hey, here is a, here is a wonderful sandbox. What do you want to play on? What do you want to do? <laughs> you know." Yeah. Um, and, and I think there's a power in that, you know. And 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 the commitment's not huge, um, you know. For us, it's, "Hey, give us an hour of your time." For you, it's like, you know, whatever. Give us a, give us an eight-page story. Do, do whatever you want. You know, it's not, um, it's not, "Hey, give us a, give us a ten-issue series." You know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah. I mean, when I when I did Classic Monsters, I definitely learned that you know um, you could just reach out to people, and they'll you know the worst they can do is well, the worst they can do is say no, or or some of the people just don't answer you at all. But right, uh, you know, the whole thing is put together through email. I just go, oh, let me just go down the list and then see, you know. And with Classic Monsters, I went kind of crazy, and I just was contacting everybody. I was just like really shooting for the moon. You know, um, and I, I had I invited Elvira to uh, in, to to do the intro. I had mm -hmm. uh, got somebody gave me um, a manager's uh, contact. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but she, she was putting out her, uh, her biography. Yeah, around the same time. So uh, that was a no. But I she did. Was, she was her. very busy around that time, so that's understandable. Yeah. So, but so she would be perfect because I was thinking like, who would be uh, you know horror the producer of horrors? Yeah. yeah. And almost everybody from the, you know, the uh, classic uh, monster era are, are not with us anymore. Uh, so, I mean, like Vincent Price, you know, right. would have been yeah. like amazing. And then people like that. Uh, Roger Corman is still alive. So I, I did reach out to him, but I never got an answer from, from Roger. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that was like, that was definitely like an epiphany. It was like, okay, I, I, I can land all these big names. Um and if you're an anthologist and you can't get big names, uh, you're kind of sunk. 
because that's that's like that's really the name of the game. You, you need people, you know, you need some of the big names. I mean, you can do an anthology with with, with uh, I wouldn't know, <laughs> I was gonna say nobodies, but I mean, but you, you could do it without the uh, the you know the the New York Times bestsellers and, and do a great anthology. But it helps to have you know um, you know the bold based names in there, and if you can bring them in. Then, then you can get you can get the, the publishing deals because the publishers aren't you know you go to a publisher say hey I have this idea for an and they're going to say well who can you bring in and if mm-hmm. you can't bring anybody then then you know I don't think it's going to happen so right. uh, that was really what stopped me from trying to do an anthology for for so many years because I didn't think I could get anybody I mean you kind of have to trust the anthologist. You know, and if it's their yep. first one, you know, is Joe Lanza going to trust even that I'll do it? Because they they still have to take the time, write the story, and then then, then hope that you you know you're actually going to you know create the book. So, so that was like a huge weight off my shoulders, especially when I when, once I like I said I got Jonathan Mayberry, and then it, you know the rest would follow. And then we did the same thing with Kolchak. The first person I asked obviously was Richard Christian Matheson, you know, the son of Richard Matheson, who who wrote the first two Kolchak. Uh, TV movie, so that that's what usually my thinking. Let's let's try to land the big guy first, and then, then you know, you then I go down the line, and, and then it's kind of like a chain. Then they say, then I try to entice the next person with, hey, we have so and so, so you can't say no, and then uh, you know that's how you, you kind of like try to dangle that in front of them, and and then get them in. Yeah, I mean, I I certainly wouldn't have said no to Kolchak, kind of regard like it would have had to have been a fairly transparently shady operation for me to say no to (laughs) but looking at that list of writers and going holy shit look at this company i'm going to be in richard christian matheson and and rodney barnes and you know you had a lot of great nancy collins writing one for you right yes she's been on the show and uh you know it was it was just a great group of people Mm -hmm. to be invited to 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 be the list you know to be in that table of contents with those people is pretty great and that is, of course, the thing you're looking for, aside from the experience of writing a character you've always wanted to write. And in my case, I got to write the origin story of a character that I've loved since I was, yeah. you know, when was that first? Eight, seven, I think. We watched the kind of disturbing that my parents let me watch it. But, I, you know, I was a fan of The Twilight Zone and I was a fan of stuff like that. So, uh, you know, we were definitely a, a house that was watching Kolchak when I was a kid. I'm I, I, I'm interested in the in the Kolchak origin story. I mean, from from your point of view, I mean, how does that how does that opportunity present itself? How do you acquire the property? How does that happen? Because it's different. I mean, it's you know Shakespeare. I mean, it's you know it's public domain uh, uh, monsters, public domain. You know, um, uh, the there's you know there's no legal maneuvering to happen, right? But with Kolchak, you have to you know, acquire the rights to the property, that sort of thing. So, so how does that, I don't know, give us the origin story. How does it occur to you? How do you go about, you know, lining this up and then, and then, you know, tell us about the train leaving the station. Well, I wish it was more interesting because it really just came down again to an email. Okay. Um, I knew, I knew Moonstone had, had the rights to Kolchak because they've been doing Kolchak, uh, comics and prose mm-hmm. anthologies and and prose novels and novellas yeah they, they've been doing it for a while uh i know they've been doing well with it but it's kind of it was very kind of niche you know niche uh, not neat no perfect niche. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. um but i don't think like the wider uh 
you know, Kolchak fandom, even a lot of them didn't know because I know when, when once we did the uh, the Kickstarter lab, people, oh, I didn't even know Moonstone uh, was doing this. So um, I knew that uh, Moonstone had the rights. So I was coming right off Classic Monsters, and I knew I wanted to do a comic. And I was like, you know, I love Kolchak, and I was like. Let me check and see if there's like something like an anniversary or something coming up so we can make something special for, for the Kickstarter. So uh, it just so happened, this was like in June of last year, uh, that the 50th anniversary was that January. 50th mm-hmm. anniversary of the, the Night Stalker airing on ABC. I was like, that is perfect. Uh, if we do a Kickstarter, I, I know that's going to be successful. So I, I just emailed the proposal to... Uh, Joe Gentili at, at Moonstone. And uh, again, it was just like, this sounds great. Let's do it. I mean, uh, after all these years of me going, oh my God, I would love to get involved in these anthologies and, and I don't know if I could do it. And then it was just like one email for, for Classic Monsters, one email for Kolchak and it was just yeah. like, yes. So it was just, just like totally bizarre because the, the three years be- leading up to Classic Monsters, all I had done was fail and, and had setbacks. I kept losing publishing deals. And uh, like I said, we had that other Kickstarter that was canceled. So it was like, it, it, was, it was probably like the lowest point I was at, you know, in my publishing career. And then all of a sudden, I'm just getting all these yeses. And I was like, what's, what the hell's going on? And it was like, it, uh, why, now it just, it just became easy uh, after all these years. So I don't know why, but it was just really about me, like just reaching out to people. And I think it was also about me, let's just finally go and go, I have these good ideas I've been sitting on for all these years, but I, was kind of afraid to to start and I, was, I just wanted to do like little kickstarts like let me dip my toe in the water mm-hmm. and then kind of uh you know that you know just get acclimated to it before i go for the big stuff and then i said screw that let me just go for the big projects and then and then things start happening after that i i do think we're going back i do think that anthologies can succeed with a a less stellar lineup based on the premise like i think Kolshak would have done okay without all the big yeah. names because it's Kolshak and there are people who are going to be attracted to that regardless. It helped like gangbusters that you got so many great well, names. Yeah, yeah, but here's the thing is the big names are going to come because the property is amazing. You know what I'm saying? Look at all the successful Kickstarters that are related to H.P. Lovecraft, and no one involved with them is really all that famous. Well, they, it, it, it's it's because literally every fifth project on Kickstarter has Lovecraft in the title. You know what I'm yeah. saying? It's, it, it, it's not um, it's 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 not unique. It's not interesting. I mean, we we have not seen a Kolchak, you know, uh, uh, yeah. anything, you know, uh, in, in comics for a long time. And so it's the one thing on Kickstarter, it's popping up. It's the, it's the one thing in comics. It's the one, you know, and so, so people are like, oh yeah, I've always wanted to write that. I always, you know, um, uh, you know, I can, I can think of a hundred properties that would, you know, I'd be in, in a second, you know, um, they're just those properties. This is one of them for a lot of people. It certainly was for Rodney, like Rodney, um, you know, Rodney had, uh, I mean, I remember talking to Rodney about it and, and he had wanted to write that character forever, you know, for, for decades. And same thing with you, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's like, so, so you're going to get those names, you know? Um, yeah. uh, no. And I, I can't say like, I didn't have a Kolshak story run, lying around just like I didn't have a no. Shakespeare horror story lying around, but the Kolshak <clears throat> took, you know, maybe a day of research to think of an appropriate 1939 crime for teenage Kolshak to get involved with. And uh, the Shakespeare thing, you sent me the list of 
what everyone else had already claimed. I was like, well, okay, everybody's got Hamlet pretty well covered. Right. Um, but no one had picked Richard the third. And I'm like, God, he's such an obvious monster uh, and horror movie character. And he's so terrifying in his own, without anything supernatural about him, let's add a supernatural element. And then after I discover, after I decided Richard the third is a vampire was going to be my story. Then I went back and was like, well, but would these two goofball British soldiers know about vampires? And lo and behold, uh, Vlad the Impaler is king of Wallachia and dies eight years before okay. Richard III. Eight years is just about enough time in that era, in the late 15th century, for news to make it from, you know, essentially Romania to uh, Britain. And for a legend, you know, for for travelers to to get that story across to a couple of goofball. But now you just gave away the whole story. Oh, that's a you know. <laughs> there, are certain, there are certain things that I you mean. Might be a vampire. You know that that premise is is on page two. <laughs> well, I gave away the whole Romeo and Juliet thing. Yeah, it's kind of hard to to say that they're not zombies. But you know, yeah. we, we were talking about that before. That the you know spoilers are kind of an overrated thing, and. There's this issue that I call the trailer problem that comes up sometimes. If the only thing that you're going to be able to sell your project on is a thing that's the secret, you, you can't sell the project. I once got a job writing a, a script. The movie never got made, but it was about, it was a mystery about a 1930s American deep sea diver salvage operator who gets hired by a mysterious consortium to do a mysterious salvage job. And an hour into the movie, you discover it's Captain Nemo's Nautilus. And I said to him, what's the trailer for this movie look like mm -hmm. where you're selling it to people without telling them it's the Nautilus? You can't use that. That's a great structure for a 19th century adventure novel. You can't make this is going to be a $200 million Hollywood film if you make it. The trailer is going to have the Nautilus in it. I'm telling yeah. you right now. They're, they're, they're probably going to call the film Nautilus. Yeah, no, and I, I actually told him. It's, I, you know, I think yeah. his title was like Damnation or Redemption or something. Yeah, I said, yeah, yeah. he's called Nautilus. Yeah, yeah. Nobody and goes it's got to a sequence with the Nautilus in it, like a yeah. James Bond movie. And then yeah. you cannot see the submarine for an hour if you want to do that structure. It can be a mystery to the hero yeah. what he's out to salvage. But the people bought the ticket to see the friggin' submarine, man. Like, they didn't buy it for your, you know, 1930s mystery story. And, uh, you know, and I will say to the producers, uh, the really fine writer and producer, uh, to, his, uh, to his credit, he went, you know what? You should write this. I, You're right. I went down the wrong direction with this. Let me pay you to write it. And that's something I'm still going to get that made as a comic book someday. Cause it's a, it's a, it's a great story. Um, I haven't pitched it in a few years, but uh, it's worth pitching. But point being, it's something that I always think about is like, if your twist ending is the only thing you can sell the story on, it's, it's not a twist ending. You gotta like, yeah, you, yeah. you gotta know what you can keep as a twist and what is the compelling reason the audience is going to go see the movie. Yeah book by your comment. Yeah, it's it's a little bit sad though, isn't it? You know, I mean like the you know the crying game doesn't, you know, it does not have the punch today that it had back in the day. Right. right. I mean because it's like because 
I mean, literally hours after release on Twitter, people are like, <laughs> you know, just, yeah. I mean, you know, it, 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 unless you throw your phone out the window, you know how the crying game ends, you know, about two days uh, uh, after it's right. released. And, you know, and, right. that, and then it's just like, I, it, then it becomes this whole thing where it's like, it, it, I mean, it, it was the discussion we had when we were uh, when we were recording yesterday, where it's like it's the roller coaster ride, right? Well, you, you know the hills coming, uh, you, you know the loop to loops coming, but it's the ride that is that needs to be enjoyable, right? Yeah. Um, no, and and when the crying game came out, I ran into a friend of mine who had seen it, and he said it has a big twist in it. Yeah. And I got when I saw the movie when that character was introduced, I said, "Well, that's." <laughs> that I that can't be the twist, right? I was not supposed to notice yep. that about that character. Oh, okay. I guess I wasn't. Yep. No, and I knew the sixth sense had a big twist. Yeah. And five minutes in, I went, Well, Bruce Willis is wearing the same costume he was wearing when he got shot uh yep. five minutes ago. And I know from the trailer that the kid sees dead people, and I'm watching carefully, and none of the extras are looking at Bruce Willis. So I spent that entire movie waiting to be talked out of it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I was like, well, no, it can't be that. That's not. I went to, you know, Jacob's Ladder is an extremely well-made movie. But 10 minutes in, I went, if this is occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge one more time, I am so friggin' tired of that twist. And mm -hmm. all the red herrings about Jacob's Ladder and drugs in Vietnam and blah, 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 and demons and Abel's and... Nah, it's a it's a dying soldier having a fantasy before you, you know. Um, so I my my I wish that I could see great movies without ever having seen the trailer, read review, know anything about them. Like I will say with Cronenberg, I do my damnedest to walk in, sit down, and know nothing. You know, so that I can let him let him do what he wanted to do without you know without someone having told me what i what i should expect but um I mean, the last few years i've had almost every major movie spoiled from me on online because you know, i have to do all this promotion and stuff and usually you know i have to be on social media more than i want to be but it's, it's always like oh man i just i just happened to read this person's tweet or something and you know, oh you know um you know, Han Solo gets killed, you know, so thanks, you know. Yeah. I can't but, believe they yeah. killed Iron Man. <laughs> <laughs> but I, ne I never cared about spoilers, especially yeah. when I was younger. But it, it became a, a thing. I guess it became a thing uh, in the internet age. It became like a really thing. Like, there was no such thing as spoiler alert, uh, you know. Yeah, I, no, I, I always remember that the novelization of The Empire Strikes Back came out a month before the movie. A month. It came out like May 1st, and the movie comes out May 25th. No one spoiled it. I even had a friend in junior high who read it and said, oh, it's really amazing. And didn't say, oh, by the way, you know, you should know. Uh, it just wasn't a thing, you know. And like, as we've been saying, narrative surprise is sort of over uh, overestimated as the important thing. Uh, I will say I enjoy it more. Given that I will often see a movie if I haven't read the book before I read the book because narrative surprise is more, for me, it's more a part of watching a movie than it is of reading a book. You know, I don't read books to be like, oh my God, I can't believe that happened. Uh, it's, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's still an important thing. I mean, it it, um, it strikes me, it, it is most apparent with basketball games. I have a, I have a five-year-old. I cannot, you know, uh, I cannot always watch 
the Celtics playoff games uh, live, right? Um, and so uh, they're on the DVR, and I will try to avoid my phone like the plague. Um, but I am not always successful. Somebody will text me something, you know, oh, can you believe that shot? Can you believe whatever? And if I can avoid it, and, you know, I, and, you know, the game's over at eight, I start watching the game at nine o'clock. If I have avoided everything, there is still this beautiful, gorgeous tension in the entire game. And I am, I am on the edge of my seat and I am living and dying with every shot. However, if some idiot has texted me and said, hey, can you believe that three pointer at the buzzer? There's none of it. I, I, I know where it's going. Um, uh, there was no tension. There was no, there was no roller coaster ride. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think it is, I think it's like that with movies also, you know, I mean, there, there, there are certain things I mean, obviously like, I, I don't have to tell you how excited I was about Top Gun Maverick, you know, and, um, and, and James, same as you, it's like, I have to, I have to be on social media promoting stuff and interacting with people and hosting the show and all of these things. Yeah. And it was, I mean, it was a minor miracle that I avoided any and all spoilers uh, uh, on Top Gun Maverick. And I, you know, I walked in IMAX theater, uh, knew next to nothing about it. And I fucking loved every second of it, you know? And I don't think I would have had that experience had somebody said, oh, you know, by the way, this happens. Oh, you know, they, um, um, so, so it's weird. And, and here's the thing is like, I mean, it seems inconsequential, right? Because you see it once, and then you live the rest of your life and you've already seen it. And, you know, of course, we're going to go back and watch some of these movies 20 times. Right. Um, and, and every time we, we rewatch it, uh, well, we've already seen it. We know what's coming. Um, but it's weird. We're tapping back into that initial experience every time, you know, um, and 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 really our enjoyment of something long term really hinges on our first experience with it. Mm. Um, and it is, it is this weird psychological thing, you know, where, um, I mean, if you got, if you got punched in the face by the sixth sense, the first time you watched it, um, every time you rewatch it, it, it is a delight, right? If, um, if like you Avalone or, or, or me, it was spoiled for you or you saw it coming minute five or whatever, you know, I don't even know that you need to rewatch it. Right. It comes on and you're like, oh yeah, this, um, yeah, you know. No, I do think though that 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 shows the danger of hinging so many of the pleasures of the movie on that thing yeah. that you were hiding. Like I, I had the opposite experience with the. I don't know if you watched the first season of Westworld. Yeah. There is a hiding in plain sight misdirect for the entire season about who characters are. You think <laughs> basically you think two threads are happening at the same time, and they're not. They're happening thirty years apart. Uh, and because some of the characters are robots, nobody, you don't, you don't know that one character is the same guy that you're seeing 30 years younger. Yeah. And that reveal is astonishing. Mm -hmm. And going back and watching it and seeing how they did yeah. it and didn't tip it off. Yeah. I think I've watched that first season three times more than I've watched the sixth sense because mm -hmm. now that I understand what I'm being shown way, and they just had the season premiere of uh, season four, mm -hmm. and there's a there's a plot line in it that is absolutely nonsensical if it's not a trick, mm. not to give it away to anybody who hasn't watched it. And I turned to my wife and I was like, "Remember season one? This isn't this is something else. Mm -hmm. This isn't what this appears to be. This thread and this thread and this thread. There are four threads happening in the show." 
these three are happening in the real world at the same time. This one is a very different thing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't know if we're in a virtual universe, if we're in a video game, if we're in the future, if we're in the past, but this thing right here, this is not like these other things and we're just being misdirected into believing it is. And that's 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 a real talent. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're, you're right about the rewatch and the reread. I mean, I remember talking with the Hollywood exec about it. My, my favorite comic book series, I think of all time is 100 Bullets, you know? Mm -hmm. And, you know, Azarello is telling these uh, these smaller stories, right, that sort of add up to something bigger. It's, it was always the beauty of the series is, okay, well, you do have these down on the ground stories that you're telling. But if you look at everything from above, everything is interconnected and there are dominoes falling. That's really interesting. And it went for 100 issues. <clears throat> and I remember talking to a Hollywood exec and we're, I don't know, around issue 70 something or whatever. And he's like, yeah, I can't I can't wait to read this once they get to a hundred to read it back, start to finish and see if it all adds up and makes sense, <laughs> you know? Um, and, 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 you know, he can see, he can see that like this, this larger, grander play is happening. Um, you know, and he's wondering how it's going to come together. If it comes together, he wants to go back and, 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 and see the strings being pulled and everything. And there was a beauty in that. And it's, it's great when it works. And then it's disappointing when it doesn't. I mean, it's um, if you look at the, uh, the Battlestar Galactica reboot, um, I mean, I, I, I'm a huge fan and like, and I think that there's some really sublime work going on there. And I would say 95% of the time I was watching that show, I was riveted and I was all in, I think they're doing a plus work. Um, where they fail is that it kind of doesn't come together in the end. Yeah. Right. They're doing this high wire act and they fall at the end and, um, or, or, you know, or, you know, it's a gymnast doing this amazing vault and then not quite sticking the landing, right? She falls on her ass uh, uh, at, at the end of the, um, you know, still, you're still getting a good score. Um, but man, if she would have stuck that landing, it would have been a fucking perfect 10, right? Um, and, you know, and so, and so going back and watching that show through the lens, it becomes hard to, it becomes hard to fully appreciate the A plus work they're doing midway through the series because you know, okay, well, this isn't gonna, this isn't gonna, yeah, add this, up. Doesn't, this doesn't pay off. This yeah, yeah, and, and and you can start to even see it's like, okay, well, if they had just, you know, that thing that they were they were trying to do in the last season, if they had just planted something here, if they had mm -hmm. just done this instead of this, you know, um, um, I mean, we talk about this a lot where it's like, okay, well, you're you're doing a ten issue series or something like that, and it's like, well, how much do you plan, right? Um, and, and for, for me, a lot of it just kind of happens organically and, 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 you know, you, you sort of find the dramatic questions organically and then things pay off naturally and stuff like that. But, um, but if you do it that way, you risk not sticking the landing in the end. Right. Um, you know, and, 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 you know, certainly people who plan too much and you can totally plan too much and then things become stale and, you know, uh, maybe a little robotic, but you can be certain that you're going to stick the landing in that case. Yeah. 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 I think lost lost was the one that really, you know, for me, yeah, they didn't, they did not stick the landing and they, and then when you get to the end, you go, Oh wait, they were just making up as they went along and which they yeah. admitted. Yeah. Wow. yeah. Like how I, are they going to talk? Well, every, every episode was this amazing mystery and it was what's in the hatch. And, yeah. and they were like, yeah, we would just, yeah, we would just keep, creating all these mysteries but we we had no you know we, we were hoping maybe you know we would be able to talk it up but we couldn't figure it out yeah, and, yeah. And it was like oh you were just like you were just teasing me this whole time you it was just like a, it was just a trick basically it's like i mean if you you 
if you're going to write a story and you had no accountability, like yeah. I'm just going to keep creating all these mysteries to kind of, you know, hook you in. But I just want to get you to the end. But then, you know, I, you know, yeah. we'll, we can just punt it then. And it's, well, we got you to, it's like, ha ha, yeah. we got you to watch this whole, uh, you know, uh, mm-hmm. series. And we didn't know what we were going to do. Yeah, it is. It is really easy to write a good first act. It's not really easy, but you know what I'm saying. It's a lot. If you're if you're a great writer, if you're a talented creator, it is easy to write the first act. And I'm talking about the first act of a screenplay, the first act of a series, the first act of whatever you set up, you build a world that is interesting, blah blah blah. But paying that off, um, you know, extending it for seasons, uh, but then ultimately paying it off is the hardest part. I mean, it's um. It is, it is the problem with virtually every Marvel movie is the, and then they fight third act, right? It's like, okay, well, well, we, you know, we got you this far. Here's a fight, you know, um, and shit blowing up and blah, blah, blah. Even Iron Man, <clears throat> which I think is maybe one of the best tent poles I've ever seen in my life. The, the, the initial, you know, the, the, the godfather, grandfather of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I love it. But it's still, and then they fight third act, right? Yeah, the, the fight with Ironmonger is the most uninteresting thing in the movie, and I think that's a, yeah. you know, that's a thing that I always bear in mind when I'm writing, particularly film and television. But even in comic books, you have to go like the. It's tricky dramatically. Look at look at the Empire Strikes Back. You've got the mechanical walking thing. Which is a you know the the fight with the with the ATATs about yeah. four minutes into the movie. Then you've got the asteroid field. <clears throat> the lightsaber duel at the end is not as visually spectacular, so it has to be emotionally spectacular. Yeah, yeah. It has yeah. to mean more than Han Solo do- dodging asteroids and Luke Skywalker fighting robot elephants. Yeah, and that's hard to do, and if you don't. You know, the the easier thing that most people try to do is like, no, we'll just make sure that thing in the third act is more spectacular than the thing in the second act, which is more spectacular than the thing in the first act. But one of my favorite recent blockbusters was uh, The Man from Uncle, which ended with a very classic Bond movie, commando raid on an island with a bunch of henchmen. And the director breezes through it with a bunch of split screens and it's over in seconds because he knows it's boring compared to the personal stakes of the main characters. Them shooting a bunch of extras with machine guns is like, let's just, let's get through this. And he does a genius thing about an hour into the movie. There's Mm -hmm. actually an action scene that hilariously the camera pays no attention to. The main character, Napoleon Solo, has the partner he doesn't get along with. They're in a motorboat chase. He falls off the motorboat, swims to shore, finds an abandoned truck with a guy's lunch in it, and sits and eats his lunch and watches the motorboat chase, which is largely out of focus in the background. Yeah. And it's a hilarious scene, and it's more entertaining than a well-filmed motorboat chase because it's just kind of hilarious that Napoleon Solo is watching his partner in great danger and going, "Eh, yeah, Yeah. how about that? I guess did I do something? I guess I could do something. <laughs> I mean, what comes to mind when you're talking about this is is Avengers Endgame, how, how that ends, and 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 really it comes full circle because the Marvel Cinematic Universe launches with with, with <laughs> Iron Man, you know, with one man story, Iron Man, really, and yeah. um, 
and and it ends with uh, you know that 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 what is it the third phase or whatever ends with with one man's very personal story and Endgame has this grand uh, you know the, the the Avengers headquarters is decimated you have literally every Marvel hero fighting this force of alien bad guys nearly eighty percent of the world's working movie stars are in that yeah scene. yeah and it's crazy and you have the like ooh the, the the women team up moment that is a little patronizing to me but some people love it and and all that stuff and 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 there is that stuff they service everyone and it is grand and it needs to be grand because it is the um you know, it is the end of this era, but really the entire thing hinges on one man's story. It, it, it is about Tony Stark. That moment is about Tony Stark and his daughter, right? Um, uh, uh, you know, at the beginning of that movie, you know, uh, Tony Stark is left with this choice. It's like he can, he, he has this perfect life, right? Um, he, he has this, his wife, he has his daughter, he is happy for the, and, and at peace for the first time in forever. He never thought he would get this. His life is perfect, but he looks out and everyone else is suffering, right? And he has to make a choice. He has to make a choice between, okay, well, do I choose my happiness or do I choose everyone else's relative happiness? And um, and he tries to choose his own happiness, but the hero inside of him will not allow him to make that choice. And so he starts to, his mind starts to work and he figures everything out. And he knows that taking one step down that road is, is going to mean losing everything that, that he holds dear, but it's for the greater good, right? And all of that pays off at the end of that movie where, you know, he and Doctor Strange, you know, across this battlefield with all this chaos going on, they share a look and they both get it. They both understand. And Tony's like, oh, it's me, right? Um, and, 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 and Tony has to make that choice to sacrifice himself for everyone else. Uh, knowing what it's going to mean for his daughter and for his 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 wife and 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 all of these things and that is a really powerful. I'm getting worked up a little bit just talking about it because it's great writing and it's great emotional filmmaking and great storytelling. And then we go to his funeral afterwards, and uh, and everybody's sitting with his daughter. And I, I have a five year old daughter. And I know what that means. I know the weight that carries. And like that is good storytelling. And so to see you know again like I, I think I mean I love Iron Man and it's one of my favorite tent poles, but it falls flat in the end. Endgame kicks like a fucking yeah. No, the, the fight with Jeff Bridges has no weight, yeah, and it's not helped by the fact in superhero movies struggle with this a lot that it's two CGI robots. It's yeah. not Jeff Bridges. It's you know that Jeff Bridges yeah. and Robert Downey Jr. had very little to do with it. Yeah, um, Sam Raimi. You know, between Spider Man One and Spider Man Two. Man, does Spider-Man have his mask knocked off him a lot in that second movie? <laughs> looked at that. There's that scene in the first movie. There's a confrontation between Spider-Man and Green Goblin. That it's just two guys in Halloween costumes on a. It's two stuntmen in Halloween costumes shaking their heads at each other to a voice track, and it's comically bad. Yeah, and he must have watched that and gone, "We just got to keep ripping his mask off." You know, and we got to have a villain with an expo doc op. We just got to see his face all the time or there's nothing going on here. Yeah. You know, and that's the the funny thing to me about the Tony Stark arc is it's literally the same arc as that character is in every World War II combat film made during World War II. Mm -hmm. There's a selfish guy who doesn't believe in the cause, who's cynical about the whole thing. And that is always the guy that jumps on the grenade in the last scene. Yeah. And, you know, and meanwhile, Captain America is the kid who jumped on the grenade when he was 18 and scrawny and didn't know any better. And, you know, like he's always been that guy. Mm -hmm. And you always have that character. 
but you always have the, you know, the hotshot that doesn't believe in the cause who gets turned around and, you know, but ultimately that's what it's, it's all about. It's all about having a human story to tell and, you know, for all of its beautiful explosions, Star Wars has less of a human story to tell than the Empire Strikes Back does. Star Wars at least has the, the you know, that has the kid yearning to be out of his hometown, which is the universal thing happening in that. Mm. Uh, but Empire is the richer thing, and it manages to have diminishing action scenes that are more personal as they go along. You know, the scene in the snow, it's mostly extras getting killed. The Millennium Falcon, that's Princess Leia and, and Han Solo that might get killed. In yeah. the end, it's Luke, but it's everything because yeah. it's the hero's soul that's at stake. And that's the, you know, that's that's the thing that you're after. But uh, I want to I want to roll back. Actually, we didn't talk about um, your Dead Jack series. Talk a little bit about that. What's the origin of that? When do you start that? How many of them are there? Where can people get them? That started back in 2006. I wrote a, a short story. Um, basically, uh, I was just like wanting to write a detective story, and I was just thinking of trying to do a non-traditional detective story. Um, and I know that they, you know, they've been uh, robot detectives and ghost detectives and stuff like that. And I was just, and it was kind of like, what would be the stupidest idea? And I said, well, maybe a, a zombie would probably be a stupid idea. Um, so it grew from that. It just grew from stupidity. And uh, I wrote this short story. I, I liked it. Um, it's like one of the first things I, I finished. And I just filed it away. I didn't think no, no one would be interested in this. And I, I didn't think anyone would publish it. Um, so I sat on it for about, about five years. And then, uh, <laughs> you know, I had like this real problem with like imposter syndrome where I wanted to be a writer from the time I was like 17. But I really didn't do that much writing, and I was always studying, you know, writing, and I was reading books about writing. But I never actually uh, sat down and took it seriously. I'd be like, maybe a short story here and there, but uh, I always felt like, no, you know, I'm not a writer. And every time I sat down to write, it was just like psychological torture because I would write mm -hmm. a line like, "That's not as good as Elmore Leonard." Okay, <laughs> and I closed the computer. So, um, and even at my current my my job, which is you know, I'm, I'm in journalism. And I've, I've had my job that I'm, you know, I'm at now for 21 years. Um, I never called myself a writer until like maybe 10 years ago. Uh, I would always say, "Oh, I'm in journalism" or something like that, because I, I always felt like, "Yo, if, if I said I was a writer, people would be like, oh, you're a writer,' and then you know they would start questioning that." So it wasn't until like maybe 10 years ago I was like, "Wait a minute, I write, and I get paid. I guess I'm a writer." And then I said, "Okay, I guess I could say I'm a writer." But that that didn't even you know dawn on me until about ten years ago. So I had a real issue with that, and so uh, it wasn't until about ten years ago that I actually took a, a, a writing class, a, a, a fiction writing class. In college, even though I wanted to be a fiction writer in college, I never took a creative writing class or a fiction writing class because it was way too precious for me. Like, mm. a class and then like submit a short story and have it criticized, or I'd be in a class with like like you know, the school jock and who's not taking it seriously. So I, I just stayed away from any um, any writing classes, you know, that weren't like journalism or, or, or stuff. And when we had Allen Ginsberg was teaching uh, at Brooklyn College and I had an opportunity even to take a poetry class with him. And I was like, no, I, I can't do that. So uh, 
It wasn't until about 10 years ago they took uh, a, you know, one of these online studies with Gotham Writers Workshop. And when I was doing that, um, I, I was writing a story that I was going to submit because you get you get two stories that you get um, to submit to critique. And the story wasn't done. And it was the deadline was there, and I and I had to upload the story. And I said, I have this this dead Jack story. Let me let me just put that up there, and just because you know I have to put something up. And uh, the whole class went crazy for it. They're like, if this was a series, I would read this. They were not even the teacher was like, this is really good. So I was like, Ooh, maybe maybe I got something here. And then um, a few months later, Weird Tales was looking for zombie stories where they had a zombie themed issue. And uh, I submitted it, and uh, that was my first acceptance. So it really started from there. And then a few years after that, um, I wrote the first novel, and then that was my first Kickstarter was for the Dead Jack uh, novel, and that did well. And then two months after that, it got optioned uh, for uh, TV and film, and then I got an agent, um, and then things kind of went wrong after that. <laughs> well, that's a that's an interesting thing about you know there are there are so many stages in a writer's career where they think oh now that's it now I'm now I'm good and that's I thought yes I thought everything was good I had I had um, the novel was out I had a successful Kickstarter I had an agent uh, I had the option mm -hmm. and I mean it, I don't have the same agent <laughs> I had it that time. But uh, yeah, I think that's when things started going wrong because the agent said to me, oh, you got this option. Uh, I, now remember, the, the book was already published. I self-published it because I, 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 I thought that Jack's a little crazy. You know, he, he, uh, he snorts uh, fairy dust and he, he, he drinks very heavily uh, and he smokes and he's um, even on the cover with smoking. I thought maybe people wouldn't even want to put that into a bookstore. Um, so I, I never, it was never written that, you know, with any intention to get it published. That was always going to be self-published. I figured, you know, readers would, would like it and be cool. And I didn't want to have any of those restrictions, you know. But when I got the option and then I got the agent, which was a little backwards. So the agent was maybe a little bit more interested in the option, a little more interested in the producers I was working with, maybe. Um, so he says, um, no, I, I think I, we can get a, a publishing deal for this book, even though it was published already. And he was like, this is going to be a bidding war. And I'm like, wait a minute. I don't I don't think so. I mean, I'm kind of new to this a little bit, but I don't think having an option um, is that big a deal. It's a big deal for me, but I don't think people are right. like, God, this is a lot of things get options. But that but I said, well, I stupidly thought, well, he's an agent. He he maybe knows a little bit more than I do. Uh, so he's like, there's gonna be so there was no bidding war. Uh, we uh, we got we got two uh, offers for the book. It was a very small publishing company. Uh, called Curiosity Quills, and they said, uh, "Well, my agent told me they're very excited about it. They're going to do all kind of marketing behind. Mm. They're going to get it into bookstores." And um, I was a little leery about it because they were, um, you know, I looked them up, and they, they, you know, some people had some bad things to say about them. Then my agent said to me, "Well, well, they they, they treat agented uh, authors better than they treat not." And I was like, "That's not a good thing either." Okay. Yeah. Um, so, but, but I, I signed with them even though I wasn't excited about it because they were supposedly going to get into bookstores and they were going to promote it. And, uh, so then they published it and, uh, they didn't do anything. They didn't, they didn't, they didn't do any promotion. They didn't get into bookstores. They said they weren't going to do print on demand. 
they did do print on demand. Uh, they never even sent me any of the books. No. Um, <laughs> I've never, I've, to this day, I have not been paid any of the royalties. Uh, they then published the second book in the series without without a contract, but they only had an option to do the second book. They put the second book out like two months later. And so they did absolutely nothing that they were supposed to do in the contract. So I got my rights back and they were, I think the whole company was kind of falling apart, but they were giving the rights back to almost to everybody. So, you know, I had the, un, you know, you, unfortunately I, I jumped on this ship just as it was like sinking. So that, that two book deal just fell apart really fast. Uh, so I got the, the, uh, the books back like, uh, like maybe like three or four months after they published it. And then I listened to my agent again, who said like, no, I think I can still sell this book. I'm going to go back out. And I said, you know, I wanted to do a Kickstarter like I originally wanted to do. Because uh, when I did Dead Jack, uh, it was like November of 2016. And uh, it sold about 3,000 copies within the first six months, you know, which is pretty good for self-publishing. Mm-hmm. But then since I, when I got the publishing deal, I had to, you know, take it off Amazon. So then it was, it was unpublished for about two years. Well, my agent was telling me that he was going to sell it. So at this point now, Dead Jack's already been self-published. It's already been published by this this small pub, uh, publisher, pulled uh, you know back, and now it's back out you know making the rounds. It's like no one's going to pick this book up. Mm. But uh, my my agent was insistent. He 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 tried for about um, like six months, and then he just threw the book back at me and says, "Yeah, I I, I can't sell it." So that was like two years later, and now I have to self-publish them again. And then the, I lost the whole momentum of the Kickstarters. I lost the of the sales of you know on Amazon, and I basically had to start over. Um, and then I you know cut ties with that agent, uh, and there were other issues too <laughs> with with the uh, working with the producer. Yeah, he was very interested. He 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 then got into like a re- you know a working relationship with the producers that I was working with and making deals with them. And so. Um, yeah, I mean, if you if, if the agent if it's if it's if it's one of those things where you know if, if it's too good to be true, which is probably not, that it was like um like a fifteen minute phone call after with the agent when uh, he signed me, he was like, oh, you got a, you got an option, okay, I'll sign you. That was it, you know. It was like mm-hmm. you didn't look in, even into into my book. So so that was like you know the first mistake, and then uh and then I, I this is the thing too I talked to Ryland about was Action Lab. Uh, then I, cause in the middle of, uh, after I wrote that Jack, I wrote a graphic novel and, uh, action lab then gave me uh, a contract for the graphic novel. And the problem with that was that, well, one of the problems with, with that was that, uh, the, the graphic novel was already, uh, option because the same, you know, the, the, uh, producers who, who optioned that Jack, they had wanted to go to Quibi at the time, uh, Hmm. As they were looking for animation, uh, so they were aware of the, of, of the graphic novel I'd done, and said, "Oh, we'll, we'll option that, and we'll because we'll, we'll, we want to pitch it to Quibi." So Action Lab went kind of crazy because Action Lab wants everything. Action Lab wants your your movie and TV rights, and they and they said, "Well, you know, we don't make make money on uh, comic books. You know, the money for us is on the ancillary rights, or, or you know, or the possibility that they can sell it to to movie and TV." So they were really like, we were like. They they didn't like that, but the contract was just terrible because they they just, they just take out all your rights basically, except for the copyright, and 
the one thing that I didn't like was that they took the right to, to publish any sequel. So if that first book fails and they don't want to publish you ever again, that's it. You're done. You can't, you can't do anything with it. So we try to negotiate with them and it, it really went nowhere. So then that was really frustrating then to be like, Oh, it would have been my first graphic novel and it didn't happen. But I think it was the guy, Brian Seaton, who uh, he, he was no longer with them. So then I was contacted by, by actually like a, maybe a year later, about the time I was doing uh, Classic Monsters Unleashed, uh, the Kickstarter. And they said, you know, we're still interested in, in, uh, pu in publishing uh, your graphic novel. And right now, we're just, uh, there's a lot of stuff, I guess, going on, but we'll get back to you. I remember because when I was cross promoting with Ryland and uh, I saw he, he had worked with uh, Action Lab. And I wanted to, you know, hear from people who work. I like, should I, you know, should I, uh, you know, do it? And I think he was like, yeah, no. <laughs> so I didn't pursue it after that. You know, it's like, yeah, enough people. And everybody I've ever spoke to with uh, whoever worked with Action Lab said, no, run. It was, it was like, that was the worst thing I've ever did was to sign with, with Action Lab. Well, you know, there's there's a couple of overall lessons, I think, to draw from some of this stuff. One is that it's such a classic thing for someone who's a writer who's writing who is good at what they do who worries that they're not good enough and doesn't want to call themselves a writer meanwhile every other person giving you writing advice on twitter has never written anything will never written, yeah. written anything they're they, they call themselves the people who are out there calling you know i'm always fascinated some guy calls themselves a you know a colleague or a writer and you go to their their twitter account and they have eight followers and they've never published anything and there's no you know not even not even fan fiction, not even a zine somewhere. It's just, it's all, people love the idea. It's like being a director. People love the idea that they have no interest in doing the homework. Mm -hmm. It's a difficult, painful, hard <laughs> job. I mean, God knows, as I always say, none of us are putting up drywall. So like there are things, <laughs> there are things it's way easier than, uh, but it's, the easiest thing in the world is telling people you're a writer when you're not doing it. Uh, uh, you know, and I find that, people who are legitimately writers are actually more circumspect about calling themselves that until they've made sales, until they can point at a thing on a shelf and go, I, well, I, I wrote this actually, I'm a, I'm a writer. Um, but also nobody knows anything. You think getting an agent is the be all end all? It is not. Your agent could be a fool who knows less about the market than you do. I have encountered dozens of them. There, you know, there's also the, you know, my show business maxim is that yes is fast, no takes forever, and maybe equals no. Um, you know, I've I still am without a literary agent. Uh, I got a very uh, backhanded, well, I won't say it's got a real compliment from a friend of mine, Dara Hyde, who is a literary agent and was putting out feelers for you know if anybody wants to submit, interested in. And I said, I'm you're more of a prose lit agent, right? So you're not really a comics person. And she said, yes, I'm not a comics person. She's like, boy, but I really, with the amount of work you do and all the promo and pro I was sure you had an agent or a manager or something. And I was like, no, this is all me just being exhausted all the time is, is what this is. But I'm glad it looks like I'm someone who has an agent and a manager and a lawyer, but I, none of those yeah. I, I, I mean, that, those relationships are so transactional and, um, and you are cattle to them. And, and I think that really the key to it is making them cattle to you. I mean, the, uh, 
the first thing that any agent or manager tries to do is get you working for them. And, and that's just simply not how the relationship is supposed to be. These people, these people work for you. They, they, they serve at the pleasure of, of this president. Um, I, and, and as soon as they lose their utility, as soon as they stop returning phone calls, uh, uh, you know, in a reasonable time period, it's time to get rid of them, you know, and, and, uh, and, you know, they're, they are, they are a tool in your career. And, and, you know, I, I don't mean that to sound cynical and awful, but it's like, I mean, what I have learned and I am now on my, I'm with my fourth manager and I, uh, I have had three, uh, different agent sets. Um, uh, I fired my last agent, um, when the WGA told us that we had to, uh, and I have yet to, I have yet to sign with a new agent mostly because. I've had I've been lucky and that I've had work lined up and well I've lined up all this work so why commission an agent on it at this point right. and it's not really like I have the bandwidth to to be out there taking a ton of new meetings and stuff like that um, but you get a honeymoon period right you sign with a new agency or a new management company and they are extremely excited to get your work out there to introduce you to everyone they have and so you have I don't know what it is three months five months six months a year it just depends of this honeymoon period where you are the star of the show and they are really breaking their back for you. Um, and it's amazing to ride that wave. And sometimes you make a sale quickly or whatever, and that period gets extended. You know, you have proved your worth to them because, because here's the thing is like, I don't mean to demonize these people. I mean, some of them are fucking demons. I would say like, I would say maybe, I would say maybe eight of the 10 stupidest people I've met in my life were fucking agents or managers. But, um, but, uh, but, but here's the thing is they only have some, they only have so much bandwidth. They're, 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 they're trying to make money. They're trying to cut deals for people. Um, and so you have to be doing your job also, and you have to be a fit for them also. And so, so if they have busted their ass for you for six months, and, and they have nothing to show for it. You have not made a sale. You have not, uh, they have put you in a hundred rooms and you have not made a single uh, meaningful relationship with uh, with one of their contacts, then, then you're not worth their time. And, and, it, and it doesn't mean that you're, doesn't mean that you're garbage or you're not a good writer or you're not a good person. It maybe just means that it's not a good fit, you know? Um, and and it, is, it is best for everyone to move on um and not to take it personally and, and, and you just have to do it it's it, it's a tool right and 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 sometimes you know sometimes it's a matter of i mean you don't cut bait at the first sign of uh of 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 trouble because you know it's like any relationship you can work through the trouble also sometimes it just it just helps to have somebody there even if they're not even if they're not they're not the ideal fit well, if you don't have anyone else knocking on your door, if you don't have if you don't have another ship to jump to, it's great to have somebody there to bounce ideas off of, to field offers if they come out of left field because that happens. Um, uh, and there's that. See, for me, like the the constant has I, I've had the same lawyer for 16 years uh, in in um, in Hollywood. Um, uh, he's been great, and he's always there, and I can depend on him, and I trust him. And um, if I if I have nothing else, that lawyer is always there to field offers, to uh, to to uh, to make uh, collection requests, all of these things. Um, I think you need somebody, you know, um, uh, because just I, I mean, if only because it it fucking sucks to do it yourself, um, to to have to ask for the money, to have to pressure people. 
Um, the beauty of having representation is that you can be good cop and you allow them to be bad cop. You know, I mean, it, 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 in an ideal situation, you're never talking money with an editor, with a uh, with a, a with a producer, with anything. You should be talking content. Uh, you should be talking about projects. I mean, I think I think once you're like, hey, man, uh, can I get paid or can I get ten dollars more per page on this or any of that stuff? I think it starts to take the relationship in a it starts to taint the relationship in, in, in a way. And sometimes it's it's necessary, I think, particularly in comics. You don't have a lot of comic professionals with agents. Um, uh, but I mean, I, I, I think it it makes the relationship worse. Right. Um, and so if you can if you can separate church and state that way, um, I think it is valuable. Yeah, bill bill collecting is definitely the worst part of it, and yeah. uh, and and Dara actually said to me, "It's like I was sure you had someone, if only for the paperwork and the chasing yeah. after getting paid." And I'm like, yeah. "Nope, sadly, that's all me." I will say the thing about a lawyer: I've often heard that, like, if you are good at managing your own career, a you need a lawyer more than you need an agent, and more yeah. because yes. basically, even an agent is going to need a lawyer to look at a contract. Yeah. Yeah, no, I yeah. say that too. And I was thinking that yeah. that part. the lawyers work. Yeah, yeah. Once you get the contract, uh, if you're doing the deals, then then all you really need is a uh, is a lawyer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and, and, and they, they, yeah, they will, yeah, they will they will earn their keep. I mean, yeah. they they will earn their five percent or whatever. Um, and, and and that's what I will say is that is you know as an entertainment professional. Uh, finding somebody who will work on a percentage rather than an hourly rate will save you a lot of fucking money because sometimes oh, yeah. these things are no, in the marathons and, and, yeah. and I, I've seen people blow their entire, you know, uh, options uh, just on lawyer fees and that sucks. Um, but, you know, with my lawyer, I mean, sometimes I'd be like, ah, do I really want the lawyer to look at this? Because then I got to give 5%, blah, 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 blah. And I sort of did that on my last comic book deal. And, uh, you know, cause I, I had already negotiated an absurd, like a, a really good page rate for myself and a really good percentage of this, that, and the other thing. And I basically just took the package over to the lawyer and I'm like, here, it's basically negotiated. Just, just dot the I's, cross the T's, bring me the contract back. And he brings me the contract back and it's like, oh, well, he got me $15 more per page. He got me a higher percentage on this. He got me. That's so what I'm supposed to do. Yeah. yeah. I was going to say a lot of lawyers just for the, in their own self-interest so that you remain happy with them. Yeah. I've known a lot of lawyers who came back and said, well, I negotiated this so that now my 5% is added to what they were going to pay you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, like I got one extra 10 grand, which is just by sheer coincidence, also 5% of this deal. <laughs> Uh, so at the very least, I paid myself for my time out of yeah. your pay, and you know well, that's fine. But yeah, it's and without naming names or giving anything, I had a recent situation where uh, we got lawyers involved. I think a little too late, and there were way too many cooks in the broth, and feelings got hurt because people wrote dumbass emails to one another. And uh, I think the deal may be salvageable, but I really boiled it down to the lawyer is going to, it's between, you know, one group of creators and one company. And I said, the lawyer is going to tell us what is best for us. I am going to convey that to one other member of the company. They are going to convey that to the company. Those people aren't going to write any emails. They're going to convey it back to my contact who is going to convey it to me, who will then convey it to my team. Like, let's, Let's take all of the egos and the people who are fragile out of this conversation. 
mm-hmm. and let's have it be between the professionals who respect each other and who know they're in a good situation and their lawyers. And that's, you know, way too often people, uh, people get their feelings hurt and get their backs up. And sometimes with very good reason, um, sometimes there, there are people in this business who don't know how to treat their, uh, their their fellow creators or their you know fellow business people professionally and with respect and then you just have to go like okay let's strip all of those people out of this conversation and boil it down to but yeah you generally the time comes when you need someone to be the person to say hey i need a raise you know i've been very lucky with dynamite they've been pretty sensitive over the years to bumping my page rate up over time and all that and me not having to you know, say, I'm leaving if you don't, blah, blah, blah. The best thing in the world is to, you know, they, they, they gave me a raise without being asked earlier this year and reached out to me about publishing a dream project of mine. And I went, oh, they have, they have figured out my value to them. Mm-hmm. Got it. <laughs> you know, like they, they see me doing other projects with other companies and they would like to remind me that they love, love, love me and want to take care of me. And that's, you know, I know that there's a degree of that that's personalities and friendships and whatever, but there's also a degree of that that's dynamite looking at his balance sheet and going, wow, these Elvira comics actually make a little money, you know? Uh, And four years in, it can't be written off as well. Elvira would be successful. Whoever was writing it, they have figured out that that is no longer the case. Um, But it takes a while, you know, that it took me, I've been doing this eight years. It took me a long time to be someone who got a raise without being asked. You know, and I'm still not someone who gets invited to comic book conventions. Uh, you know, I know people who have appearance agents. I think about that sometimes. I've been, <laughs> offered, I've been offered some fairly shady appearance agent deals. And I went, mm. you know, like sometimes you're like, well, on, the, on one hand, this is a pretty fair deal. On the other hand, do I want this person being the one representing me to convent? No. Nope. So, you know, it's still a, it's still a struggle, but you know, I think I, I really wanted to drive home just, you know, the lessons from your particular arc, which are listen to yourself and have faith in yourself view, you know, out view people you don't know very well with a, a degree of healthy suspicion as to, do they really know what they're talking about? I had a friend, yeah. a, a very pop at a time when he was an extremely successful screenwriter, he would tell me about the, notes he would get on scripts from his agents and i'm like from your agents you're taking notes from people you pay (laughs) i take notes from people who are paying me i don't pay people to predict what notes executives are going to get uh let's let's talk to the executives first and i cannot tell you the number of projects that have been noted out of existence by uh, agents, managers, and executives before they hit the marketplace. Yeah. And it's the most painful thing in the world when you had a good, solid project and script, and then you listened to a bunch of professionals who gave you their smart market analysis notes of how the thing should be changed for the current market, and then they fail to sell it. Because you don't get to say, bet my first draft would have sold, though. Because now the now the thing's ruined. Now those people are never going to look at it. You do get the rare one in a million thing 
an old acquaintance of mine wrote seven. And when Fincher agreed to shoot the 10th draft of it, he said, you know what? Could I see Kevin Walker's first draft of this? I'm just curious. I just want to see what the first draft was. And he got the studio submitted first draft before 10 other screenwriters took a crack at it. And he went, I'm going to shoot this one. Mm-hmm. Actually, this one, the 10th one was nice and I liked it and I would have made it. But this first one uh, doesn't have a lot of garbage that got added in later. And that's a very rare experience, sadly. Uh, but it does happen, you know. But yeah, the experts who tell you they know what to do, the, the number of times people have assured me they were going to sell something. The number of text messages I've gotten saying, pop the corks. And I'm like, is there a signed contract? <laughs> well, no, but they say, um, I'm, I pop no corks. Not without a signed contract. Actually, with that, not without a check that cleared. Uh, that's that's pop corking time. But uh, but speaking of which, we should wrap up. I uh, Imagining that today is Wednesday the... What is next Wednesday? The fourth, fifth, sixth, I think. Yeah. That right? So how much longer does Shakespeare Unleashed have from Wednesday the sixth? It should be two weeks. Uh, okay. we, we end on Ju- July 21st. Okay. Great. So, uh, and how many, it's mostly a prose anthology. How many stories in the prose anthology? That's still sort of up in the air because you have a submissions period, right? Yeah, so we, we should have at least 20 stories and uh, 14 people have been divided, so at least six of them we'll get from the open submissions. And then we have sonnets as well. Um, we're going to do at least 10. So we have- uh, I love the idea of horror sonnets. That's, uh, sonnet, that's, yeah. a, that's a whole new art form. I mean, I think- one could argue that Poe wrote the occasional horror sonnet, but uh, but it's a it's a good art form. <laughs> yeah, so we'll, we'll be taking submissions for that too. So uh, who knows? I mean, if we do uh, a little bit better on the Kickstarter, we will probably add more stories and more sonnets. Uh, and I don't know because uh, how it'll work out because we might end up needing more sonnets because of you know they'll be in between stories so we might need more room so we might end up needing like 20 sonnets so okay so sonnets might be your best way uh in and i'm thinking i'm thinking maybe i don't know if i'm crazy but maybe maybe take submission for a, a, a couple more pages in the comic yeah sure i think we could fill that out because between the, the, the two stories i wrote and yours i think we have there'll be like 16 pages and I, i'd like to get it over 20. sure so I might open up submissions for for, for, for very short, like maybe like uh, even if it's like if someone has a idea for a one page thing or a two page or, or at most four. Okay, well let me let me see if I can think of something for that. I wouldn't mind having <laughs> that thing because I really I I got such a kick out of uh, out of doing that and writing in that style. I'm always when I read things or watch movies that are set in periods and they just throw around a lot of uh god what did i just was watching some show set in 1971 and someone said you got this and i'm like <laughs> come on man ask somebody from the 70s if we saw it said that we did we didn't say that in the 70s uh to me and i think yeah i've noticed of all the people that writers that i admire the cohen brothers really seem to lean into this 
if you're not interested in writing in the music of the period, if you're not interested in that, why do it? Like to me, the whole fun is getting to use that language and that voice. And I'm, as I told you, I'm still probably going to tweak the dialogue on uh, Bloody Thou Art up until the last minute because I'm not convinced it's significant. I like mm, a few more lines should rhyme, man. Just a couple more rhymes in there. <laughs> uh, and I didn't, I'm not, I will never claim to be the kind of scholar. It's not an iambic pentameter. It is way more written in 1960s. Stone Cold Ryman. Yeah, it's written in 1960s avant-garde play language of Tom Stoppard. Way it, more. It works. Yeah, that's, that's tough because when I was doing my story, I was like, I was trying just to do as little dialogue as possible. I, do, I really want to screw that up. So, and I think the the stories lend themselves to you know a visual story. So, uh, oh sure. Yeah, I, I didn't want to hand, take like your job where I had to write you know tons and tons of dialogue because yeah that's yeah and i wanted to write the characters talking like that. i i just you know the, and to me again to me it's like that's such a joy the great joy of writing twilight zone in when i did that comic was being i've wanted to do a rod serling pastiche since i was eight years old like so being able to write you know submitted for your approval you know, I don't think I leaned on a submitted for your approval or uh, or uh, imagine if you will. I think I might have gotten a portrait of a man who in there, which is a big Serling. Kent uh, Dallard, portrait of a man who's lost. Um, you know, but but to to be able to write in those that variety of styles and not have to write twenty twenty two. American goofball talk, you know, is it's just such a yeah. such a joy. But uh, do you have have you thought about the next anthology after Shakespeare Unleashed? Yeah, so that's that's gonna be a tough one because, like you were saying about Lovecraft, everyone's like, do a Lovecraft Unleashed. I was like, no, I'm not gonna do Lovecraft. Uh, um, so that's that's gonna be a trick of doing something. Kickstarter does not need more Lovecraft. <laughs> It doesn't. I'll be fine never doing a Lovecraft. No, no more Lovecraft, no more Cthulhu, no more, you know, uh, uh, I mean, I, there's probably, you know, yeah. Don't do not do anything with, you know, boobs spilling out of dresses and, uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> you're, 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 you're doing highbrow stuff right now. So, uh, so. Yeah, so it's got to be something that's, um, that would be popular to, something that I don't want to go too obscure, you know. I mean, I love Kafka, but I don't know if I did a Kafka Unleashed. Uh, <laughs> that would be cool. I mean, I would do that, uh, you know, for a small... Camus uh, Unleashed. That's, you know, that's what the world needs. Kafka Unleashed. Kafka Unleashed sounds like a... Yeah, I mean, it sounds like a book in like a... Um, uh, in like uh, a Wes Anderson movie. <laughs> I'm do my, yeah. my Nausea, John Paul Sartre Unleashed. Nice. Oh, that, yeah. I, yeah, I used to be a big literary snob back in the day, so that was all I read. And yeah. so, yeah, Kafka would be cool, but I would do that in another another thing. Um, I'm thinking like like ch like children's literature, like uh, like um you know Wizard of Oz, Peter Pan, um, something like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, even Wizard of Oz has been done a million times too. But if we do all of them, you know, if you can, and maybe even throw in some, you know. It would really be Disney Unleashed, basically, because yeah. it would be Cinderella and Snow White and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah, I, I, I believe Cthulhu actually invaded Oz uh, on Kickstarter. Yes, so. that, is, <laughs> that, that is that is one of the many one of the many mashup. Yeah. And look, we all do them. I mean, when yeah. I was a kid, me and my dad came up with a sequel to King Kong that starred all of the 1930s 
pulp characters. And 20 years later, and I'm not, I doubt he read the fanzine that published our little bit, but Will Murray did a Doc Savage on Skull Island thing and published it. You know, like it, it, there are no new ideas. You do really just have to, what, what, what can you bring to them? But yeah, it's hard to come up with one with the, a writer. There is no writer that you can point to and say, this writer has the same effect on not merely uh, writers, but on English speaking culture as William Shakespeare. Like did you, you, there isn't a comparable writer, you know, so you can't really hit that, you know, the thing that the teenager who discovers, uh, who discovers Shakespeare immediately discovers is, wow, 20% of the cliches that come out of my mouth are quotes from Shakespeare plays. Right. I had no yeah. idea that everything I say is a Shakespeare quote, uh, you know? So it's, 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 it's definitely a challenge to come up with one that's that, you know, Lovecraft, I would say is the greatest influence by, on people who've never read him. Yeah. You know, I, I would say that 99% of the people who are huge 21st century fans of H.P. Lovecraft are fans of ancillary spinoff things and have never actually read one of those short stories and i'm not a gatekeeper that's fine if what you love about lovecraft is your the alan moore comic or whatever the hell you read good for you you know it's uh i uh yeah them. i i appreciated the elmar leonard uh reference about 40 minutes ago so <laughs> if, if and when you get the elmar leonard uh anthology right, together, send me the fuck up that's interesting because you, you that's why i don't like lovecraft and that's why i like uh elmar leonard dialogue yeah yeah, no dialogue, and I love dialogue. And Elmer Landon was one of the best at doing it. Yeah, um, he would write short stories. It was just all only dialogue. There was no, you know, no business, nothing. Sorry, yeah. uh, and I hate Lovecraft for that reason. Uh, I hate that it was like we have the dialogue, and I, it's, I just can't stand like these big chunks of, of prose, and it's just you know. Yeah, well, I, 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 <laughs> Elmer Leonard was fond of saying that he cuts out all the parts that he would skip while he was reading, and um, yeah. Everything is there for a reason. I mean, I'm a I, I'm I'm a big Lee Childs fan. Also, you know, I like the Jack Reacher books. That's right up my alley. But it's like the average Jack Reacher book is about 150 thousand words. The average Elmore Leonard book is about 75 thousand words. You know, the, mm -hmm. the crime novel, and um, and you see the difference. You know, uh, Lee Childs will spend five pages on how Jack uh, Reacher drives from uh, the Washington Monument to. Uh, you know, to a, um, uh, you know, to uh, CIA headquarters, you know, in, in Langley or whatever. And it's like, well, he took this road and then he banged a right on here and he hit some traffic yeah. and, and, blah, and, and, you know, Elmore Leonard's like, fuck that shit. And, and yeah. so, so you read an Elmore Leonard novel and every word is there for a reason yeah. and it's poppy and it's swaggery and it, and, and it moves and, uh, and, and there is just, there is no wasted movement. And I appreciate the hell out of it. My dad was the same way in his private eye novels. I think some of them are like 60,000 words. But yeah. They're usually between 60 and 80,000 words, I think. But he would always say, and I don't know that he invented this phrase, but he would say, you know, when you write a gothic novel, a gothic romance, you got to hang the drapes, man. Yeah. Like every every room, what's the decor? What does the couch look like? Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like the people who read those books want to know about the drapes. So you got to hang. <laughs> you, you're setting a scene. You got to hang the drapes, and then 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 yeah. Lady Wonderly can walk in with her candelabra, uh, yeah. pursued, <laughs> pursued by ghosts, but not before you hang the drapes. And uh, and I, you know, God bless him. I I I in write one of the reasons I prefer writing comics to writing prose 
is the artist hangs the drapes. I don't, I don't have to do any of that. <laughs> uh, now, you know, go back and read the highly acclaimed Alan Moore Swamp Thing. You want to see some H.B. Lovecraft blocks of prose text that are hard to go back and reread. Oof. And I reread, I wrote, I read those. I was a huge fan at the time, but every once in a while, I'm like, oh, four more paragraphs of poetry about the swamp. I don't know that I need four more paragraphs of poetry about flies and buzzing and, you know, the tall reeds and blah, 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 blah. But you know, it's a it, there. There are there are many styles. But all that said, I look forward to hearing what your next thing is, and you know, come at me early, <laughs> so that I can come up with something for it. Uh, where can people find you on the web, James? Uh, you can go to mantrasbooks.com. Uh, that'll have all the uh, projects that I've uh, done um, and on social media links there. That's my publishing company. So after all the success of the, the Pixar, I said, let me just start my own publishing company and. So I don't have to deal with these publishers anymore. Smart. <laughs> and, and so Crystal Lake published uh, Monsters Unleashed, but then you republished it at, from Monstrous, or the Kickstarter was from Monstrous? No, my, I think Monsters hasn't even come out yet, uh, technically. Uh, oh, okay. So we did the Kickstarter last year, but the book is, is going to be released July 12th. Oh, okay. That's so actually. I, I have my copy, which is it's a beautiful, beautiful copy. Yeah, so all the backers got their copies, so it they, they took a really long time to to, uh, to publish it. It was actually too, it became very complicated because once we got successful, everyone was like, "Oh, we want a piece of this too." So then we ended up with two publishers. So Black Spot Books did the um, the, the print uh, versions. Uh -huh. Crystal Lake did the eBooks. Oh, okay. But really, I, I did everything. Yeah, no, I like I said. <laughs> it's, a it's a beautiful package, and I'm sure that the Colshack anthology. Crystal Lake is still working with me on on yeah. um, on Shakespeare Unleashed. Great, great. And Ryland, where can the kids find you on the internet? Uh, as per usual, I'm at Ryland Grant on all forms of social media. If you're just listening, it's R Y L E N D G R A N T. I always spell it because it's not a real name. My parents drunkenly arranged letters and saddled me with it, and so now I have to spell it for you. Um, but my uh, my books, the Ringo Award-winning Aberrant, the four-time Ringo-nominated uh, Banjax, and my Tokusatsu joint, Suicide Jockeys, are available in fine comic shops everywhere and on Amazon and, you know, wherever they sell fine comics. Uh, my Kickstarter books, uh, the uh, Astral Projection Thriller, The Jump, and the Fargo-esque crime drama, The Peacekeepers, uh, are available via my backer kit site. If you go to thejump2.backerkit.com, it's the jump one word and the number two, thejump2.backerkit.com. You can find those there, as well as signed copies of Aberrant and Banjax and Suicide Jockeys and Rare Con Variants. It's a, it's a one-stop Ryland Grant shop, so uh, check it out. It is cool. And again, if you go to immortalstudios.com, uh, it's immortalslashstudios.com, I believe, uh, you can uh, still get copies of my latest and greatest. It is the uh, Wuxia Kung Fu Epic Fa Sheng Or. <coughs> um, that one's a lot of fun. So go check that out. Um, I think that's all I got. Why don't you uh, bring us on home, Evelyn? Coolio. In shops now is Elvira in Harland 2, my uh, Kubrick, The Shining issue which has my favorite title ever. She's a Kubrick house. Uh, Geiger Encounter. Geiger Encounter is coming next in July. Geiger! July is, I don't, I have no idea how it's pronounced actually. Um, and uh, Savage Tales uh, number one comes out July 6th today. 
run down to your shop. It, uh, I thought it was going to be an entire book of obscure characters, but then I found out I was the sucker that agreed to do the obscure characters. <clears throat> and it's Vampirella Red Sonia by other writer, and then Gullivar of Mars and uh, Alan Quetermain from, from me. And uh, yeah, and coming towards the end of the month is the prequel to Elvira in Horrorland, the uh, five-issue trade paperback of Elvira meets Vincent Price, which is a delightful romp, as I am, as I am fond of saying, uh, I shouldn't have to sell that book to you. If you like Elvira and Vincent Price, you will like that book. If you don't, nothing I can say would uh, convince you that you should read it. If you dig that, you dig that. If you dig that, you dig that. But, you know, if you don't dig Vincent Price and Elvira, what's wrong with you? Uh, so on that happy note, uh, thanks for joining us on this issue, this exciting episode of uh, The Writer's Block. And thanks you, James, for joining us. Thanks for listening, guys. If you're watching us on YouTube, be sure to smash that like button. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts or other fine purveyors of ear crack, please leave us a five-star review. And wherever you're watching and or listening, subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. We'll see you back here next week for more madcap hijinks on The Writer's Block. For more information, visit PendantAudio.com. Thanks for listening.